1: Maybe you've had a firm for a year or 10 years or 20 years, and you're starting to rethink, reimagine what your firm could or should be. All of the topics that we cover, one topic every day, fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture, and they are the need-to-know topics for the success of architects just like you. You know, at the end of every episode of Context and Clarity, I ask you to find some time to breathe and to relax and find a way to rejuvenate. And that's exactly what we're doing here at Context and Clarity Live right now. It's the holidays. So Catherine and I and the entire Context and Clarity Live team are taking a break right now. But I didn't want you to be without Context and Clarity Live, so I thought I would share with you one of my favorite episodes from the first 45 episodes of Context and Clarity Live. This one is Seth Godin. Now, getting Seth Godin on Context and Clarity Live was a big deal for me. It was a huge kick because I've been following Seth for 10 or 15 years, and he didn't disappoint. I'm just going to say that right up front. Uh, He was very down-to-earth. He was very human, very gracious, and it was a wonderful conversation. But I wanted to just share a quick little backstory with you, because you may know Seth Godin by his signature glasses that he wears. And before we went live, Catherine and I were talking to Seth, and he told us this funny story about being in Miami Beach and someone stealing his signature yellow Seth Godin glasses. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't make it to the tape, So you're just going to have to take my word for it. But it was a funny story. Now, if you watch, if you go to YouTube, to the Entree Architect channel on YouTube and watch the video replay of this conversation, you may notice that Seth changes glasses in the middle of the conversation. This was kind of set up in our conversation before we get started, but it was pretty funny when it happened. He changed glasses to be have some more architecty type classes on. So go over to YouTube and check that out, but in the meantime I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we had actually talking to Seth that day and recording this for you. So again, breathe, relax, rejuvenate and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Seth As we were talking before we went live, one of the things that we encouraged everybody to do was listen to your Akimbo podcast and specifically the episode entitled uh, The Architecture of Architecture, which I believe was published January 11th. And we've talked about your latest book, number 20. Congratulations on that, by the way. Um, A little background on that. I think the first of yours that I read was Purple Cow about 15 years ago. Uh, I've read the Icarus Deception, uh, read all about permission marketing, uh, big fan. So this is a big thrill for me, number one. Um, The idea that you have come all this way, book number 20, the practice and for our audience especially... There's a there is uh, for any of you that haven't read this book. There is an, a chapter in the book called "Where Are All the Great Architects?" So it's it's really interesting to me that we're talking about the architecture of architecture. We're talking about the practice. Um, you mentioned specific specifically architects, um, obviously in both of those formats. So I've got to ask, and I think I've got to start with this question: What sort of feedback? What sort of reaction have you had? from architects, from the architecture community, specifically about the podcast episode?
3: Well, I'll start with two things. First of all, I have so much respect and admiration for people who are devoting their life to creating long-lived uh, items of utility and beauty, and to do it in conjunction uh, with clients uh, for the long haul. At the same time, I want to apologize. The Maya culpa, which I put in episode two later, is I discovered That even though an architect uh, designed the renovation of the house I live in, so I therefore assumed everyone needed an architect, you don't need an architect. And that the people who are making most of the monstrosities that are out there for houses are builders, not architects. And I clarified that. But my point remains, because even though builders who are acting like architects aren't called architects, they're acting like architects. And so the math is the same. And I have Not heard from many architects because not many architects uh, listen to my podcast. That's on purpose because the goal is not to build something for everyone. It's to build something for someone. And a lot of people who have chosen the path of architecture have often decided that the kinds of systems theory and culture change that I talk about isn't aligned with how they spend their day or either that or they're not emailing me. But uh, I heard (laughs) from a, a professor or two and a couple other people, but mostly crickets
2: really mostly but, crickets
1: crickets buddy
2: Hi. Oh, i know and i would have written too so
1: thank you that that's interesting but i would i would encourage everyone like uh Seth said uh i believe it's two episodes later it's the episode on uh, litterbug uh, if you first of all listen to the litterbug episode because it's another great episode but then as is the tradition on the akimbo podcast when you get to the end you get reactions from the audience. And there was a reaction from a, uh, a professor of architecture and also a student uh, who's in architecture school right now. So I encourage all of you, if you haven't already, uh, also check out that episode and um, listen to those, those comments from both and the professor and the student.
3: And I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I would love to dig into the meat of this, if you're yep. ready. I think the core message, two parts. The first part I'll say after I say the second part. Second part is this. Just about every architect is a freelancer. I'm a freelancer. Freelancers don't build businesses bigger than themselves. Freelancers don't get paid when they sleep. Freelancers don't win because they find some magical form of leverage in which they hire junior versions of themselves and pass them off uh, as them. Now, freelancers work with our own hands. Freelancers get paid when we work. Freelancers do the work. That's why you sign up to be a writer or an architect. Not because you want to run Architecture Incorporated, but because you want to be an architect. And if you want to move up and move up in any sense of the word, responsibility, leverage, craft, income, doesn't matter. The only way to do it is not by working more hours, not by hiring people Who can't get a job and then marking up their work. No, the only way to do it is to get better clients. Mm. That's it. Well, good freelancers have good clients. Great freelancers have great clients because clients, good clients, great clients push you to do better work, push you to publish your work, pay on time, insist on getting work that they are proud of. Lousy clients are going through the phone book and racing to the bottom. Lousy clients mm. accept mediocre work. So that leads to the first point, right? The first point is at some level, you're responsible for what you're doing. You're responsible for the carbon footprint of what you're building. You're responsible for the cultural impact of things, the flow through the buildings you erect, the kind of labor that went into it, the side effects and effluent that it causes. You may not blame the client because you picked the client. You're not just sitting there as a tool of somebody else. And that is what it means to be a professional, not a cog in the system. So I know I'm ranting, but that's my rant, which is as a freelancer, I let myself off the hook for a really long time. I couldn't publish this book because no one would publish it. I had to make this book this way because that's what my client wanted. And then one day I said, no, this is just too long a road for that. I'm going to own this. I'm going to say no to people I don't want to work for. I'm going to establish standards. I'm going to put my name on it. And if people don't like it, I'll make it for somebody else.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. And you talk about that, of course, in the book, The Practice. Uh, for those that listened, another suggestion we had was for uh, the audience to listen to your interview with Debbie Millman uh, on Design mm-hmm. Matters, where you talk about the practice as well. And so the, the, uh, um, that brings up a great point. Uh, Catherine, you've, I think you popped something up on the screen here.
3: Boom. Well,
2: so the big question is, how do we do the work to get the better clients? Because I think that's one question we talk about a lot anyway in here. So what? Here's the miracle?
3: myth. The myth is that you can go from mediocre clients and just keep working harder and harder and harder. And then suddenly you get really right. good clients. That, right. in fact, is not the way it happens.
2: Hmm. That explains it.
3: Really good clients seek something different than mediocre clients, and what they seek varies. but for example, if we look at you know the American architects who broke out um, the ones who are household names, how did they get there? Did they get there by toiling inside the bowels of um uh, you know some giant firm or by no, they got there because they created buildings that might not even have gotten built, but entered them in competitions. They did things on spec and put them into the world and said, here, I made this. And it attracted a certain thing. They developed a point of view. Like one of the things that architects have to deal with every day, which is no fun, is Howard Rourke and Frank Lloyd Wright. But mm. that those archetypes established something just like Marcus Welby did for doctors. And so if you're a good client, if you're putting up a signature building or a signature bridge, well, you're looking for the kind of architect that needs a client like you. Well, you got to put up a flag that says that's the kind of architect I am. And that's why monographs are so important. That's why feeding the community is so important. And it also, this is the key part, obsessing about the smallest viable audience, not the biggest possible audience. To mm-hmm. say, I need clients and you're a client, that's not going to work. You need to say, I do this kind of work, and if you don't need this kind of work, I have five phone numbers of people who you should call who do the, what you look for. But if you're not busy referring business every day or every week to other architects, then you're not serious about standing for something.
2: Mm.
1: That uh, I think that's a great segue to the question I see on the screen. There you go. That's the one I wanted. <laughs> Thank you. where where does where does the public perception of architects come from you talk a lot in uh in the podcast episode about hgtv and i thought that was a a fascinating part of that episode so where where does that perception come from
3: well i don't think the public has other than the glasses much of a perception of architects as much as they are (laughs) aware of status roles and affiliation status (laughs) roles and affiliation uh Basically summarized in who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down. That's what drives all human behavior. So, you know, I'm subscribing to the Cheap Houses newsletter. Every day I get an email about a house that I could buy somewhere for $84,000. It's pretty nice. So why doesn't everyone live in an $84,000 house? Well, because they need something to show their mother-in-law. They need something to show their friends. They need something to show their spouse. They need something to show themselves. People like us do things like this. People like us do things like this is partly defined by folks who build buildings. Because people like us, if we live in the Hamptons, we live in a house that looks like that. It would be wrong to live in a house that looks like that. And so culture is this engine that defines what it is to be people like us. And a big part of our built environment, office buildings and houses, are the work that you do. And then the last part of it is there was a question about uh, the elites. And I need to make a really important point here is elite is not income. Elite is attitude. There are elites in the poorest villages of little tiny ta- uh, countries you've never been to. There are elites who have tons of money and who have no money. Elite means I have decided that I will measure myself based on standing next to the other elites. And I need a place that can validate that for me. I need a building that can validate, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we raise a flag and we say, don't bother calling if you don't want to be next to people like that. Because here's the deal. If you tell me you want something pedestrian, I'm going to give you the phone number of my friend who makes pedestrian buildings. Leave the building. Get out. I'm not here to do that for you.
1: Okay. Mm. That make, that makes sense to me. Do you have another question, Catherine?
2: Oh, I do, yes. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs>
3: I've been ranting. I distract people uh, all the time.
2: I thought I already put it up. In my mind, I already put it up. Okay, so, um, so one of the questions was, how can architects actually enjoy the process of design instead of focusing on the outcome? And one of our outcomes is getting paid. Right. So turning away all these clients also could mean not getting paid. Do we just take, take the mediocre ones in secret? so we can get secretly paid? I don't know. Anyway, but this is a different question. How can architects enjoy the process of design instead of focusing on the outcome? Do we do something else? Write music or knit? Okay,
3: so focusing on the outcome and trying to control the outcome are two different things. If uh, you are doing professional work, you need to be aware of your compass heading. You need to be aware of who it's for and what's it for, the change you're seeking to make. You need to be aware of what good is going to feel like when you're done. That is different than seeking to control the outcome, which is impossible. So here's how I think about attachment. If you and I want to swim across Joe Lake, which is uh, two miles, and back, and we want to do it safely near each other, well, one thing we can do is uh, get four lengths of 18-foot rope and tie my right hand to your right hand, my left hand to your left hand, and we will always be attached to each other. If we do that, we will drown. The other thing we can do is while I am swimming, I can be aware of where you are swimming and I can adjust accordingly. And too often, stress comes from trying to do the first one, controlling people we cannot control. And great architects, in my experience, are the ones who figure out what's out of their control and don't try to control it. And instead say, this is work I am proud of and I can be in flow because I'm not dancing with a human I have to change, I'm dancing with my work.
1: You mentioned in uh, the practice, you mentioned flow, and I really appreciate, it. you know, i I've, a couple of months ago, I read David Meerman Scott's um, Fanocracy, and you know, he's a surfer and he talks about flow and there are other pe- people that talk about flow. Can you just touch on that for a minute? Um, what's flow? How do you get there?
3: This is um, a mistaken idea and uh, I need to credit the author of the book, but I can never pronounce his name. So I'm not going to try, but <laughs> enough. What, what we know is it is tempting to say, once I get into flow, I will do great work. Hmm. But in fact, the way we get into flow is by doing great work. Just like the way we fall asleep is pretending to be asleep.
2: That is and- so true. That is so true. That is the secret.
3: And so you've got to set up mise en place. You've got to set up an environment. You've got to come to work on a regular schedule. You have to do the work on a regular schedule. And then flow comes, not the other way around. And that's why morning pages work. Because you should never show anyone your morning pages. But the act of committing to writing three pages every morning before your coffee proves to you it is possible to get into flow around stuff that's trivial, which makes it so much easier to get into flow when you need to.
2: You mentioned That's morning. Right. Is that the pages that from the um Julia Cameron book? The
3: artist way, Julia Cameron, yes.
2: I love that. Um okay, do we have time for another one?
3: Let's go. Keep going. So,
2: all right. Hopefully I just clicked on the right one. Okay, so at in your book you talk or I mean in the podcast you talked about the waitresses taking order for McMansions or the perceptions of hacks working for developers and all that. So etc. So how do we change those perceptions? Right. Be skilled experts offering valuable professional services.
3: The, The best shortcut I can tell you is to become a community organizer. Figure out a group of people who need to be connected because there is an issue around which they are lonely. Connect those people. Do it graciously and generously. And over time, that will earn you attention and trust. And if you are the connector of all of that, then the phone begins to ring. So here's a a callous example and and a less callous one. The callous example I wrote about like 15 years ago. Let's say that you're in Cleveland and you want to start a business that sells home security systems. Well, one thing you could do is start a blog where you post photos of places in Cleveland that have lousy security and you analyze them one every day. Over time, this act of exploring and explaining without pitching anybody will establish you as the expert who has seen everything. And now you will know, or Bruce Schneier, who is the world's expert on computer security. If I had a problem, there's no question in my mind, I would call Bruce, because I've been reading his blog for three years in which he has narrated this journey. But in the case of an architect, you know, there's 50 up and coming young families in some neighborhood. Well. Who's doing a virtual tour of houses for them with no uh, idea that they're going to turn around and hire you tomorrow, but simply because they want to be with other people who are into that. Or if I think about, you know, a hundred business people in a town, most of them aren't going to be building a building anytime soon, but all of them are lonely because they can't talk to their spouse or their board or their employees about the stuff that's on their mind, but they can talk to each other. Who's organizing them? Be the organizer in this era where it's easier than ever to organize. Look at what Catherine and Jeff are doing, right? It doesn't cost money. It takes time, takes care. But over time, being the center of the circle creates connection. So that's path A. And then the second path is do better work. Don't do better work for bad clients. Do better work for imaginary clients until Mm. you get a client that actually wants the thing built. And today with, you know, AutoCAD and the rest of it. It's so much easier to create something that you haven't actually put a hammer and nail to that someone can look at and say, that, that's pretty cool.
2: So you could even just put that on your website without entering it into a competition, even if you wanted right. to, right? Just to put that out there, what you'd like to be doing.
3: Right, or start your own competition. I still remember, don't remember any of the details. Some charity did a competition for lifeguard chairs. And they invited like 50 lifeguards to enter what how they would redesign the lifeguard chair. And one could imagine, okay, we're going to sell those sketches to fans of the charity, blah, blah, blah. Well, suddenly a magical connection has happened because fans of the charity have the willingness and, and means to build a building. The architects had a way to do something fanciful. And the, you, know, you can see how all these pieces fit together if you make it part of your practice, as opposed to saying, you need an architect, I'm an architect.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, know, I know you have a, a limited amount of time in which we appreciate every second we can get of that. Um, so one of the things I want to say to the audience is Seth is going to have to uh, leave us at some point, but then we will continue the conversation after Seth goes and we'll wrap all of these ideas up together. So, um, so I just want to put that out there for everybody. Uh, do you have time for one more question?
3: Two more and then we'll wrap it up.
1: Okay two more let me let me ask this um, to the point that you were just making and, and you mentioned it earlier, the smallest uh, viable audience and you know whether it is the the up and coming families or whatever the context is, what is a smallest viable audience? And I think you know to in it, by extension, there's this idea of changing the public's perception of architecture. Is that the duty of the collective or is it the duty of an individual architect?
3: Okay, so those are two things. The first one is smallest viable audience means how do you put yourself on the hook? If there are only 1,000 people who are going to build a hunting camp in Vermont in the next year, how do you make a body of work that those 1,000 people can point to and say, she made that for me? And now you're on the hook because if it doesn't please those thousand people, no one's interested. Right. So that's what I mean. Do it not by uh, demographics, but by psychographics, by what a group of people believe, yearn for, et cetera. And it doesn't have to be people who are rich. You can say, I am doing this for people who are uh, underhoused, who are, for people who are uh, coming to a community where there is no housing and they're going to have to put something up that's inexpensive. That's still an, a fascinating design problem. Pick a tiny group that you can connect to. But the other half of it is this. I think if we think about how painful COVID has been to so many people and a half a million dead just in this country, climate change is going to be five times worse than that in 10 years. And I don't think the challenge right now is to figure out how to get more McMansion clients. I think the challenge is, How to establish as part of your practice, whatever it is that you do, that you're not going to leave behind the side effects that uh, Levitown left behind. That you're not going to leave behind the side effects that short-term architecture left behind. I think that that's for everybody. That's
2: not how you're going to build your
3: practice, but it's how you're going to be proud of your work.
1: Very good. Catherine, you got one last question here.
2: I do. And I think it's a little off the subject, but it's a question from the audience. So what are the key differences in marketing services as opposed to marketing products?
3: I think it's easier to market a service because even though you can't see it and touch it, you can change it tomorrow. And if you've got a warehouse filled with 50,000 widgets, you can try hype and spin and slogans. But marketing is not hype and spin and slogans or advertising. Marketing is what we make and how we make it. And so if you're in the services business, what a gift. Because you can change what you make and you can change how you make it tomorrow. And you need to avoid the temptation to change it every day. Mm -hmm. But you also shouldn't get hung up on sunk costs. If it's really hard for you to get gigs building buildings, well, use your insight and your awareness of the physical world to organize a community and get paid a different way and build a different thing. You can do a different service for people who desperately need it. And I'll finish with a a short aside about my friend, Marsha. Marsha is a trained architect and was doing really well in her practice in Maryland and discovered in working with businesses that if she saw their phone directory, this was 10 years ago, she knew where all the power nexus was in the entire office. She knew who was sitting where, and she knew who was calling who. And she shifted her practice completely to the internal architecture of offices for better humanity and efficiency because she understood what was really going on in the office. And she could make it so you could get by with two-thirds of the office space, but also things got done better. And now that we're all working from home, there's plenty of room for somebody who says – What's the information architecture of your business internally? And you might not need to know what our values are and how to spec an Anderson window wall, but you do know a lot about use and flow and measurement and beauty. And so make a service that people want. And the fact that you went to architecture school is a gift from your former self. You don't have to accept it if you don't want it.
2: I love That's, that. That is, a, that is a great piece of advice right there.
1: That is. It really is. Seth yep. Godin, we really appreciate your generosity. We uh, appreciate the book, The Practice, and uh, everything that you're giving to the world. So thank you for joining us today. Um, and uh, keep, keep doing what you do.
3: Well, thanks for the work, everybody on this call. Keep making a ruckus. We'll see you. Thank
1: All right. you so thanks, Seth. All right, and as I said, don't go away because we're going to uh we're gonna continue the conversation in the way that we do on every other day of the week. What did you think? what did you think about uh what Seth had to say there? Uh I know we had a limited amount of time there, so we could have uh would have been great to dig a little bit deeper on some of those. I see a lot of comments here, Catherine, that say deep here. and
2: wow, blown deep. away. There we go. Yeah, I uh- that was a lot of permission to do things differently, right there.
1: It was, it, and I, you know, that last, the the whole last segment there, right, from the example of Marsha or, or even going back half a step, we're basically he's talking about having the empathy. You 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 have a service, and you're providing a service, and if it's just not working. You look around and you say, "Hey, what what do people really need? How do I gain this understanding? How I how do I have empathy so that I do have a service that's valuable?" His friend Marsha, that starts to understand how uh, how offices work better, uh, which is how many of you know about phone directories and offices. <laughs> Just wondering. Um, all the way to you know, you went to architecture school. Does that mean? that you have to design skyscrapers or whatever right glass walls really interesting Mm. what uh what are people saying here
2: well i mean i think people are kind of agreeing that we need to watch this again and take some notes so i know i do because i i was not um one thing i love that he said is that the way to get to sleep is pretend you're asleep i mean that is the way i always fall asleep i have to pretend i'm asleep that is so true. And also the morning pages, um just doing that every morning it helps so much just to set just kind of get the message from your intuition or get into the flow that he's talking about, I think. That's yeah. amazing. My um
1: there there was one thing when I was listening to his interview with Debbie Millman on uh, Design Matters from late last year, I forget when it was, maybe October, November last year. One of the things that he talked about, and for those of you that are not aware, uh he's had a Seth Godin has had a blog for years and years and years now that he publishes every single day uh without fail. And one of the things that I appreciated that he was talking about with with um Debbie, and he he's very humble about this, he he says, you know, a few of those Blog posts were pretty good, but the point is you just keep writing you just keep writing and eventually you know I guess it's sort of a law of averages or something. you just keep working, you keep putting in the work, and that's what professionals do uh, so I really appreciated uh, what he had to say there uh, let's see Mark says solution providers.
2: Pimp. Pimp that um, and, and actually something I would like to discuss and see what people think about the fake projects or the competitions. I mean, I know that a lot of us are I'd be more up for a fake project that I just make up and put on my own website rather than doing it for a competition. But that's me, I guess,
1: you, you know, on that point. So I remember that from the podcast episode and I thought, you know, I was, I was weighing in the podcast episode and then I've said this before. I don't know how many of you have heard me talk about this, but, uh, I mentioned that I read purple cow, which is like his third book or something like that. Like 15 years ago, I've loved Seth Godin and everything he's written and respected him for a long time. And I listened to that podcast episode, the architecture of architecture, go find it wherever you listen to podcast. And, and I even, I told, I told Seth this within five minutes, I didn't like you so much anymore.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, and, he he seems sorry
1: uh, about that. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's not, it's not his role to have to be sorry or not. But, but the reason was, I thought there were some misconceptions. I thought some of the things he was talking about were very general. And he talked about the, uh, um, he talked about the, uh, competitions. And I thought, man, is that really? Is that what we really need to be doing? But in what you just said, and I know from other context and clarity conversations that we've had, uh, Chris Novelli, for one, who I know is I saw one of his comments earlier, and Rod Werner also uh, have both talked about designing projects for themselves as demonstration projects. And when you know when he was talking about that just a minute ago in our conversation, that's what came to my mind. That's exactly what Chris is talking about. That's exactly what Rod is talking about. I, th- I think it's a great example. And you mentioned as well, design a project that you want to do. And whether it's fictitious or whether it's based on something real, put it on your website as, as your own competition. So it wouldn't be a competition, but it's your own project at that point.
2: Research. You can frame it as your research and a hypothetical. Someone said, not, don't call it fake. We should call it hypothetical and prototype, not fake.
1: Yeah, you know, those that's good points. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wouldn't call it wouldn't want to call it fake, but uh but you know you're demonstrating. And because that was to me that was one of the big questions, it's one of the paradoxes, right? There are a couple of paradoxes that come out in his book in in his latest book, The Practice and probably in the podcast as well, and one of them which we touched on a little bit was this idea of in order to do great work, you've got to have great clients. Those aren't the words that he used. And he did say that you cannot get to the point of working with great clients by working with more and more mediocre clients. So how do you, how do you leverage that and doing those, those prototypes? Um, I think that's, that's a great, uh, great example. Uh, say. Mark says the guys at F9 Productions use fun projects to gain exposure, uh, which, by the way, uh, that's a great segue because the uh, guys at uh, F9 Productions, Lance Psycho and Alex Gore, will be our guest next Thursday on this show.
2: Um, someone someone mentioned or Michelle mentioned that for tax reasons, it should be labeled as research. I'm not sure. Okay. Actually, you could do. I don't know why. I'm not a big tax detail person, so why would that be? So you can, Michelle, is that be so you can write it off? Anything you do on that? I don't know.
1: Possibly that that actually sounds uh, sounds about right. Write it off as research. Um, somebody, Rod, Liz says maybe call it unbuilt.
2: <clears throat> yeah, or Rod says there TCB. This could be projects.
1: That's right. that's a good one. It could be. Yeah. which is to, again, back to Rod and, uh, and Chris Novelli, both in their examples, they were taking a real site or a real, you know, real property, real something. And, and it, this could be is a great title for that.
2: Apparently there an tax credit for any research. So
1: that's good to know. That is good. What, um, I know there are a lot of burning questions out there that we were not able to touch on, obviously, um, with a limited amount of time. So what's the biggest question you have that wasn't touched on in this conversation? Um, somebody says two years into our practice, we realized almost all of our clients had a common thread. We defined that we have described all of our work through that lens since and continue to attract more of them rather than focusing on project type. We focused on client type, I don't know. I don't know who wrote that. But all I see. Uh, again,
2: uh, Kevin Costello, who wants to be your new best friend.
1: There you go. There you go. Uh, that is exactly um, my definition of focusing on your ideal client. So thank you, Kevin, for, for posting that. That's excellent. Um and, Somebody uh, says the way they shifted their career from doing whatever job that came up to working with ideal clients. This might be Cabin again, was designing imaginary buildings. No, I bet it's. Not. Oh, James Polk. Thank you, James. Uh, great results with the expectation of trash trashing my expensive first website. Well,
2: Michelle, I guess that's an article about how you can write off your hours doing research.
1: Okay, thank you for sharing that. So everybody. Uh, Mark wants to know how many pairs of yellow eyeglasses does Seth own? Mm,
2: we did okay? We did talk about his glasses, but we didn't ask him how many pairs of the yellow ones, but he had the other one. I think he brought that just for us because they look like architect glasses. So I thought that was nice.
1: Yep. Yeah. He, he told us a story. I guess it's okay to tell this before we went on, uh, before we went on live, he told us a story of being in Miami and going for a swim in the ocean and he got back and someone had stolen his glasses there's he didn't have glasses any other glasses with him so it's so maybe story. he only owns one
2: well he owns two now for sure because we saw them both but anyway so yeah as um bob points out don't be the architect in the yellow pages if you don't want to be the yellow pages that's for you younger people that was a listing of businesses that was in the back of the phone book.
1: I I have to say, you know, kind of on that note, one of the things that I appreciate the most about the book, the practice, and if you haven't read it or listened to it, you know, however you consume, I listen. um, I really appreciate his just beating the drum of being professional Um, doing the work to be a professional. And this is something that's come up. Many of you know that uh, every morning the Context and Clarity podcast comes out. Um, So if you need a really short um, hit, I suppose, of of Context and Clarity, you can get a review of yesterday's topic and a preview of today's topic. And then at 9 a.m. Eastern on Clubhouse, I host a live conversation for 30 minutes, just a coffee edition, and we cover the topic of the day. And I really relish that time as a, a way that I can hear from you in your voice. And one of the things that's come up a couple of times lately uh, is young people who are just starting out, and I, and I'm, this is not throwing shade on young people at all. Um, it, it's more of a mindset thing, I think, uh, than necessarily a young person, but it's this idea of... Um, oh, I, I, I can't push too hard. Uh, I can't demand too much, you know, put demand in quotes, I suppose. Um, you know, I'm afraid to do this. And I partially from reading the book, the practice and partially just from experience and, and um, knowledge, I think we have got to put that away and say the only way that we're going to gain the respect that we desire is to be professional. The only way that we're going to rise to that level is to put into work to establish the um, the procedures, to pr- to establish the systems, and run this like a profession, run this like a business. So that, that's my encouragement to anybody that has any um, any fear about that, whether you're just starting out or not. Um, you know, re- read, read the practice and hear what he's saying about being a professional and elevating the professionalism. Uh, let's That's see.
2: I do recommend, I do recommend it. Also now I get his blog every day and I really enjoy that too. So mm-hmm. As I mentioned yesterday I'm a big fan at this point.
1: I want to see, let's see, I see a couple of comments from Liz. Um, can you explain why he uses the term shipping creativity yeah actually if you listen to his uh interview with uh with uh Debbie on um design matters they she asked she asked him this and he uses shipping as basically as a a generic term that means delivering i suppose because when he's talking about it it could be um shipping a widget it could be um, completing a project, it could be anything. Um, so that he uses that term, um, it's not. It's not because he doesn't have knowledge of of the industry and how it works. It's just because when he's talking about the practice, he's not just talking about architects. He's not uh, just talking about professional services firms. He'll often talk about um, um, your art. Mm -hmm. doing your art that's a thread that goes through many of his books maybe all of his books and for you as an architect your art is your work he doesn't mean that in the the big a art sense. he means that in the sense that this is this is this is what you do this is the thing that you create so he often uses terms that are maybe a little bit uh broader Uh, Mark says it's an analogy of following through and putting the work out to the world. Absolutely. He actually, he has a book called uh, Ship It, uh, which I read about 10, 10, years ago, maybe. And, and as a book, it was really a challenge. It was kind of walk you through this and, and Forcing you, I suppose, if you went along, that's kind of ironic. But if you went along with, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through this book, ship it. It's going from idea to get putting this out in the world. That's the whole concept behind the book, ship it. It's sort of a workbook in terms, or in uh, in a sense. Mm-hmm.
2: And as Rod points out, he talks about shipping in terms of consistency. So the consistency is important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is the guy that has published that that blog post or that blog consistently for years and years and years now. Um, Facebook user says it was interesting that he saw a potential role for architects as community organizer, particularly in the COVID context. That uh, yeah, that that's something that I wish we had more time to dig into with him because. Uh, It really ties to a lot of the things that we talk about in context and clarity, whether it's, uh, we talked about it yesterday, we're talking about Twitter for architects yesterday. And one of the great um, um, uses of Twitter is connecting with journalists and and others that publish things. And this idea of, if you want to be published, you have to go to that journalist, the, the reporter, whoever they are and connect with them with some sort of relevance and why this matters. So if you are, I think the example I used yesterday, if you design um, barbershops in San Diego, right? Why does that matter to the person that writes about small businesses? Why does that matter to the person that um, writes about communities, et cetera? And I think that idea of community organizer is sort of a, to me, is sort of a tangent of that. Who's your ideal client? What's their community? How are you going to bring them together and support them? Um, Think about what Mark Arla Page has done with Entree Architect. He's become the community organizer of small firm architects across the world. Um, And and he supports that community. So what do you want to do? What kind of work do you want to do? Where do you want to do it? Who do you want to do it for? And how... um, how can you build and support that community? Uh, another Facebook user says, "Can we do a whole context and clarity on the architect as a community organizer?" I've been thinking about community art projects a lot lately. Somehow that feels relevant. Oh, it's it's Heather, the Facebook user. Thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely. I think I think that'd be a uh, I think that'd be great on the heels of this conversation today, and and especially digging into, again, sort of like the idea of ship it. What does community organizer really mean? It can mean a yeah. lot of things.
2: We could have for a guest for that one, Jeff.
1: Who? Who could we Barack have for a guest?
2: Obama. We could ask Barack Obama to come on and talk to us about his community organizing background. You know, he, that's where he kind of started off with that.
1: You know what? I'm willing to make the ask. Good. We can put him on the we can put him on the uh, the wish list.
2: I mean, he has his own podcast now with Bruce Springsteen. I heard, so he'd be comfortable I, sure. in the format.
1: I did not know that.
2: Yeah, I'm not kidding right. that.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, we we will, and I'm serious about that. We there are a few people on our wish list that would probably make. Pope. Our audience chuckle. The Pope, the Pope is on the wish list. <laughs> so, you know, you never know.
2: Barack Obama on right now on the wish, actual wish list. So
1: there you go. It's it will be on there by the time we log off here. I know that for a fact. Let's see. What else? Um, what other comments do we have? Again, I want to know. Uh Evan says Steven Pressfield's do the work is also part of this thread. Absolutely. Um Let's see. At some point, we need to stop tinkering and send it out. That's yeah, back to the idea of shipping it. Um, another Facebook user says, "As someone who hasn't consumed much of Ses work, he won me over today. Uh, going to have to read it and listen more. Uh, I like to hear that, but I want to make sure everybody understands that was not the point. Um, not not that I dislike that at all, but I really part of the reason that we launched this version of context and clarity was so that we had the opportunity to get perspectives from outside of the profession because i think it's really important that we understand what other people think about architects and what architects do so uh so i'm glad i'm glad that he won you over Uh, like i said i'm a i'm a big fan um yes Much of what he talks about, he, he can talk about it in a very general way. But if you search, it's not hard to find the applications, uh, to, to what you do.
2: I did have a question though, Jeff, you know, Mm -hmm. turning away clients and I totally get that. And that would be the way to get the better clients is hold out for them. But how do you keep your business going in the meantime?
1: Well, yeah that that's the uh, it's one of the chickens and the eggs. But first of all, you know the idea. He, he I don't know if I chuckled out loud or not. In my head, I chuckled because he started talking about becoming that architect that you know is for this type of client. You know, I don't remember exactly what the example was, but that's what he's talking about is building your brand. Right, we're the architect for X, and so that has to be the uh, the eternal pursuit. And many of you have heard me talk ad nauseum about your ideal client and becoming, you know, your brand, becoming I'm the architect for this ideal client. Um, that's that's always got to be our goal. Now, it's easy to say, and I and you know, if we challenged him on that idea, I am absolutely positive. And he even mentioned, you know, from his own career, there were times where You know, he just he didn't have the good clients, Um, and at some point he, I don't remember how he said he put his foot down or or something like that, and said, "I, you know, this is what I've got to do." Um, It's easy when we are operating out of abundance to say, "Well, no, I'm not going to take that." It's harder. I've given examples of this from my own career. Right here's seven reasons we shouldn't take this project, but we're going to take it anyway because. come monday we don't know what we're going to be working on so that's the that's the hard uh that's the hard part is mm. how do we stand up for that now i you know opportunity cost is real and one of the things i've said about that example that i share from time to time you know here's seven reasons we shouldn't do this but we're going to take it because we don't know what mm. we're going to be doing monday if i had that to do over hindsight being 2020, of course, if I had that to do over, I'd say, no, we're not going to take that. But I realize that in the coming week or coming two weeks, whatever it is, we would spend X number of hours spread out. There were about seven of us in the firm at that point. We're going to spend X number of hours over the next week or so doing the onboarding, You know, getting this project started, all of those startup things. We're going to take those hours, that exact number of hours, and we're going to concentrate for those hours on finding the next client that is a great fit and that does have the right project. If I had to do it over again, that's the way I would do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, David points out that a star did strip malls to keep his office open while shooting for major cultural work they never discuss and it isn't on their website. I mean, that seems like what you kind of have to do.
1: There's a lot of that that goes on yeah, there is.
2: because you, you can't a lot of people can't just not take on work until the right thing comes along.
1: Yeah, it, you know? it's that that's that's the that's the reality, yeah. right? So the question is, you know, we say this all the time in context and clarity as well. How do we how do we keep improving? How do we get keep getting better at that, you know? to. We we may be a star architect doing a, or a wannabe star architect doing a strip mall today. How do we get better at this every single day? 1% better every single day. So the next time this comes around, we don't have to do that strip mall. You know, how do we keep moving in that positive direction?
2: Yep. Well, it does help to have a lot of money, I suppose.
1: But sure
2: so, so Benita asks how best to go about finding out from clients what their thoughts are about architects, and then change. And then, once we know what their perceptions are, assuming they're different than Seth Godin's, Seth, how do we change it? But then, as you and I were talking about earlier today, Jeff, what? And I have a question for everybody: Is it even possible for all of us to agree on what the perception of architects should be, or what we want it to be? I don't know that we can all agree on what we want that
1: perception to even be so yeah. yeah i i think that's an ex- interesting question for people to, to ask or to answer um because i i don't think there is one i don't Just think one. there is an answer There's no i answer. think i think everybody is going to have their own um you know i think if you're a small firm architect inside entre architect maybe you're a sole a sole practitioner that does residential additions and renovations
0: mm-hmm. for, you're gonna, example. You're gonna
1: have, for example you're going to have an idea
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if you design museums in a hundred person firm i think you're probably going to have a different idea
2: right so like i think architects are for everyone and some other architects might not think architects should be for everyone you know so
1: yeah there was uh there was a, a Where's the one? Somebody just said.
2: We need to shift the public's opinion away from thinking that an architect is a middle-aged white man.
1: Well, sure. That I think. Yeah, absolutely. But part of that has to be we have to change that reality too, right? And it is changing, certainly. Um, but part of the expectation that an architect is a middle-aged white man is because that was by and large, the reality for a long time. So yeah, we have to, and we have to do a better job of aligning with society. Um, the, sorry, I was looking for a specific comment and i i don't even remember off the top of my head what the comment was but it was about it was something along the lines of you know the per how many people actually use architects what per uh liz says 22 percent of architects are, are women um the you know like we when we were talking to evan a couple of weeks ago and the small number of projects that actually utilize architects, right? So is an architect for everyone?
2: Well, I guess I would think so. I mean, I think architects can help people if people want the help in different ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely, architects can help people.
2: So Space's podcast says-
1: That's probably Demetrius, hi Demetrius.
2: Said, um, well, here's his question right here on the screen. Most people don't have the luxury to use architects. Do we see a way that traditional architectural services can be attainable to the masses?
1: I don't. I'll tell you why. Okay. Because our traditional, and the reason I'm keying in on this is because you use traditional. The way that our firms have traditionally been set up won't support it. However, I think there are a lot of creative ways to set up a firm to form a practice to provide services that could mm. be attainable by the masses.
2: Also, I think but that's it, what he was talking about with he was saying when you help people find out what their need is and then you organize mm-hmm. something to help them and that's not traditional architectural services, but that's a way architects could help.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there there's there are some of you that have heard me uh say this before from a stage or otherwise that I, I think the model, the model of a traditional architecture firm has to go the way of the dinosaur. I think it does. Um, otherwise it will continue to be for the 1%. Right.
2: And Evan, whereas Evan just said, we have to want to be of service to the other 99% as architects. Maybe right. I am the emphasis on that sentence, but that's the way I read it. That comes and, up occasionally.
1: And I think that's the other part too, is if you if you want to be of service to the other 99%, right? How do you there you go?
2: There's a picture too. That's pretty cool.
1: Nice. So where is Evan? Is he on LinkedIn?
2: Um, uh, YouTube looks like
1: YouTube. Okay. If you want to be of service to the other 99%, then we have to understand what the economy of working with the other 99% is right. If, if, if we build firms that require us, I'm just going to, I don't know why I'm going to use museums again, but if we build firms that require us to design multimillion dollar museums and take 7, 10, 14%, whatever your fee is on that, which is, I don't know what the math is on that. I don't have enough fingers, but that's a a big fee, right? If you build firms that rely on that kind of fee in order to sustain themselves, there's no way you can work for the other 99%. So what does working for the other 99% mean? Does it mean rural studio? Does it mean design build bluff? Uh, there, there are certainly models where we could, but we, you know, oh. it, it's sort of like, I think it's sort of like my son wanting to drive whatever the heck he talks about, a Mercedes. He'd never even talk about a Mercedes or something like that. But, you know, how does an 18-year-old with a part-time job afford a Mercedes? You don't.
2: Just in his dreams.
1: Yeah, sure, in his dreams. Of- so-
2: there's the other ninety-nine percent, but then there's like um rural studio and that sort of thing. It's not the whole. I mean, there are the people the ninety-seven percent or the eighty percent or the sixty-three percent, you know, those are people who could have an appreciation for and pay for architectural services of some kind.
1: One of one of what I thought was Seth's most interesting comments. And I never thought about it this way, but he said, elite doesn't mean money.
2: Yes. That was such good news. I thought that Mm. was great news. I mean, not that everybody wants but if I wanted to be elite, I don't need money. I'm just saying, I don't, I'm not saying I want to be, but yeah, I mean, it's so true though. He's so, um, I can't wait to go back and listen.
1: You know, there, there's, you've got a, there's another part of the book and I'm trying to remember again, the, when I say the book, I mean the practice, um, you know, it, it's, he talks about, or maybe it's in, I guess, maybe it's in the podcast. He talks about the tastemakers and, you know, one of, one of the other problems with the other 99% is, do they want architects?
2: Right. That is, that is, do they want architects?
1: I know plenty of people that don't even understand. Right, I remember this. You know, when I was in school, or if I were to send a one of the um, McMansion Hell blog posts to somebody, to certain people, they wouldn't get it. Right? Oh, what do you? Why? What? What do you mean proportion? Why do those things need to align? You know, all of this, right? Design training, um, you know, all of these things. There's a reason. You know, and he talks about it. There's a reason people buy the McMansions. Uh, just because someone isn't hiring you it doesn't mean you aren't working for society. That's a good point. If you add value to the built environment, you're working for others. That's a good point as well. And I saw Mark uh, made a comment a minute ago that um, just went out of my head. Sorry,
2: it's on the screen now, Jeff.
1: Yeah, we need to think. That's exactly right. Thank you. Um, that's
2: I'm here, that's why I'm here to get you the comments.
1: Well, it, that's kind of scary because you're starting to. Th- understand how I think. <laughs> um, we need to think beyond the traditional practice. And I 100%, 100% agree. Demetrius wants to know, did people want an iPhone? That's a really interesting question. It's a good point.
2: I just got my new one this afternoon. Set it up. I know. Out, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So someone said, who was this? Who said, people go to great expense to avoid hiring an architect. Okay,
1: well, sometimes, sometimes I think, you know, and one of the problems too, with this conversation, going back to some of the criticism that I've heard of the, uh, podcast episode is it's in the United States. So apologies to those who are outside of the United States. This is a completely United States centric comment. Um, the rules and requirements are so varied. Across the country, that you know, it's it's a different conversation in New Jersey than it is in Indiana for a lot of this, both legally and probably taste wise. <laughs> no, sorry, well, yeah, sorry, that. Indiana.
2: Oh, someone thinks we are intimidating on the whole.
1: That goes back to the perception, right? How do we change that? And I, I, my question is still.
2: That's Leslie.
1: Leslie says we're intimidating. I'm not in. You know, I don't know. I don't think Leslie intimidates me. I just really appreciate Leslie. Um, Is.
2: But you're also kind of an architect, so.
1: Is um. Is this. The uh, job is this, the responsibility of the individual architect? Or is this the responsibility of the profession as a collective whole? Which is, I know you asked a version of that earlier.
2: Yeah, I just don't think it's possible for us. We don't have the time to agree to come to that. And nobody, they will never agree. Can you imagine them trying to vote on something like that at a convention? I think it's up to us individually, I guess, to decide what that means to us. And then create that, create the communities that we feel we can help, I guess.
1: Yeah. You know, and and I would say that that's a, that's a big part of all of this stuff that we've been talking about, all the blog posts and the, or, or the, the podcast episodes and the book and everything else. Um, when, you know, it's interesting to me that when, if you read all the way through, actually, I think if every single book that i've written written read i haven't written any of seth godin's books every single book of seth godin's that i have read is always directed at you the individual the reader and yeah. i i know there are a lot of people that uh, you know i don't i don't have time to do this or i don't want to do this or but I'm sorry. It, I I think it comes down to you. Each of you, each of us, um, you you got to write the blog post. You've got to record the video, the TikTok, the however you're going to do it. You've got to build the community. Yep. Um, why did Seth think architects were not his audience? Did I hear that correctly at the beginning of the conversation? You did hear that. Um. I don't know. I don't know the answer.
2: Was he talking about Just his either. book or was he talking about the podcast episode? About
1: the, he was talking about the podcast.
2: Well, well, obviously that would not be, architects would not be the audience for that podcast episode. I mean, it seems obvious to me that he wasn't talking to us. He was talking about us.
1: Yeah, I don't.
2: Well, he also he a great respect for architects. So that was nice. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think he does. I think... Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure why he doesn't think that architects and and frankly now that you say that I don't know if he just mean for that meant for that episode or if he meant for the the podcast as a whole I mean he talks about creatives all the time I mean almost all of his books he's he's really the thread that goes through all of his books is the creative as a professional
2: right and that know. obviously include us but it's not just for us maybe
1: exactly yeah exactly right yeah i mean maybe that's what he meant maybe maybe he meant the akimbo podcast is not specifically for an architect or an audience of architects i i'm not i'm just not quite sure on that
2: well i'd have to listen to that again to really be able to answer that but it's um five past five now jeff
1: okay i want to i want to read mark's (laughs) I'm in here real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. Others are serving the 99%, and they are making much more money than most of us serving the 1%. And I think that is a a really great point. You know, I had a conversation with somebody about this the other day. I, it was last week, I think. And it was it was because we talked about this a couple of times on Context and Clarity last last week as well. How do we serve the 99%? And one of the things that I think has to be worked out is how do you, what's the financing look like? On On a very just surface level, when you have, say, a family whose life and finances revolve around monthly payments, and you say, well, my fee is going to be $30,000 or whatever it is, Mm
2: -hmm. you know,
1: over the course of the next three months or something like that. No way. No way. That's a huge barrier. They can finance everything. They can finance every part of your project except for your fee. So are there ways? I think one of the, one of the entries, entrees into that conversation has to be, how do we serve them how do we get paid to serve them? How do we make it? Um, how do we make it? How do we remove all the friction for getting paid? You know, the okay. other part of that can't be, you know, serving the ninety-nine percent can't be based on volume either, right, Catherine? How many?
2: Could be.
1: How many projects can you? How many projects do you do in a in a typical year, Catherine? Uh,
2: like forty. I have like 23 going on right now.
1: Okay. so a
2: while, They'll take a while, you know, so, but over the course of the year, I might take on 40 new projects. Okay. But some of them are pretty small and some of them are just master plan type things to help people with the flow of their house. And it's not the full traditional stuff. I mean, I think that's one way people do it, right? They just yeah.
1: move
2: help people out with a master plan, help them figure out what's best for their house. And then they can take it from, from there. Cause they, they're not going to, you're right. They're not going to pay the $30,000 fee.
1: Yeah. And I would, I would say then in that scenario, you're coming closer to the 99%, right? Because you have different non-traditional models that can help solve certain problems. It may not be the design of a brand new home, but you know, Hey, yeah, absolutely master plan for this or something. And I think that also goes to the idea of HGTV which, if you know, if we had had two hours with Seth Godin, I would have loved to spend an hour <laughs> unpacking that.
2: It'd be fun to have two hours with him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How do you, if HGTV is teaching people, and and if you haven't listened to the podcast episode yet, he he goes back and forth, trans, you know, going from HGTV to the McMansion and the <laughs> McMansion dweller, basically designing. The McMansion from the inside out, based on what they've learned on HGTV. The what need is HGTV bathroom. serving?
2: Mm-hmm. What's that? The, the Cathedral Master,
1: yeah. The cathedral yeah.
2: master Bathroom. Yeah, yeah, which came up in my own life recently. Like, you okay?
1: Yeah, so you
2: don't really need that
1: just for the record.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. you don't need a Cathedral Master Bathroom.
1: All right, well, you can bath, be a,
2: that's my feeling, but I work for the 99%. I guess that's all I- You can be
1: as opinionated about that as you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, living in a 80 some year old house here. Um, right. The, you know, one of the things that I, I think is just fascinating about the resistance and, and st- sticking to a traditional model is, if you, if you hate the HGTV effect, That's what I have called it for years. If you hate the HGTV effect, but you want to figure out how to serve the 99% or even 50% of the 99%, you better figure out what need HGTV is serving for the people that aren't hiring you, right? You know, is it, do you have to have your own TV show? No,
2: that'd be fun though.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. But do you, um, are you the person kind of like your, your, what you're talking about with the master plans? Are you the person, and I apologize, I'm not very well versed on the HGTV shows, but like the property brother guys, those guys, the twins, I guess they are, are you the person that becomes the, um, the idea generator for homeowners. They see it on HGTV, right? They see the, the designer or whoever it is, that comes in and does these sketches, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then that's eventually what gets built. Are you the person that, that provides that inspiration and those ideas and puts it on paper for them? Um,
2: Yeah, that's helping people. And it's not a $30,000 service.
1: And, and in all the scenarios, and I know this is different depending on where you are, but in Indiana, like, you know, Seth mentioned this at some point in our conversation in Indiana, where I live, you can do just about anything without hiring an architect. Technically speaking, you can do just about anything without hiring an architect. So especially in, situations where no stamp, no license is required, why aren't you if you want to serve the ninety nine percent, you'd better be playing in that arena. Yeah. That requires us to think differently. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be thinking differently. The I mean, here sorry, I'm just I'm just gonna keep going on a rant on the ninety nine percent until someone pulls the plug, I guess. But if uh well, if,
3: that's <laughs>
1: No um if so here here's the thing, going back to I think this was Demetrius's question twenty minutes ago, and I've been ranting on it since um so thank you, Demetrius, for the question because it's a great one. if there's a question about can the traditional model serve the ninety nine percent right? When the traditional model has traditionally served the 1%, then the answer is no, it cannot. You're talking about drastic change. Drastic change will only come about if we take drastic measures to make the change. Um, what's, there's a quote from Buckminster Fuller that I am going to find really quickly. And maybe this is where we end the conversation, but, um, I here it is. Buckminster Fuller, who I'm pretty sure a couple of you have heard of. You never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. I have no idea what year um Buckminster Fuller said that, but he's you know, he didn't pass away last year. Um it's been a minute. But I think there's, there's never a more applicable time, relevant time than there is today for that quote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Jeez,
2: 1983, he died. That, that's, is a while ago now. Yeah. I feel like And I don't
1: know, you know, when before 1983, he said that, but I, I, you know, if, if that is, if the question is how do we serve the 99% and, and yeah, that ought to be the question. Um, if the question is how do we change the perception, make the old perception obsolete. Um, I bet this is Rod use, uh, facebook user end with most people wouldn't know art of it beat him, bit him in the hiney by frank zappa we're going to keep yeah, it a less I than our sure Yes,
0: and
2: that is rod yeah yeah well, that
1: all right with that i know we have uh i know we have kept everybody but thank you all for um hanging in with this thank you for all your questions and keep thinking about this i mean that's the important part of this conversation is that we keep thinking about it. Evan says, it's not necessary to change. Survival is not mandatory. (laughs) That's a great point. So think about that in terms of the profession of architecture. Thanks for listening to this week's Context and Clarity Live episode. Selfishly, I love these conversations because I get to be the go-between between you and some really incredible guests. To that end, I want to know what you think about today's guest message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, yeah, that's not me. I'm the other Jeff Eccles. Oh, and if you have an idea for a future guest, tell me who it is and why you think they'd be a good guest for one of these conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. All right. If you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you, Subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's the multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of context and clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. I'll be back here again tomorrow. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook. The link is entrearchitect.com slash group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m., I host context and clarity conversations, and we take these topics, the topics that you hear about in this daily podcast episode, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time so we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is.